close out on Good Friday, what will you be doing this afternoon as this goes out? Tom Whitworth at three o'clock. Hey, Johnny. Um, I imagine I'll be watching Sheffield Wednesday. R- really? You're a masochist. Yeah. Um, on what date are you scheduled to be relegated? I'm not sure. I'm so optimistic, actually, that we might, we might be able to do something, although it's, it is looking quite tricky. This is the season of three managers. Yeah, yeah. For Wednesday. Three, three permanent managers and, and a caretaker manager in between as well. Well, I think with Dave, you'll go straight back up next year. Although looking at this, um, currently Rotherham have four games on Birmingham who are run have been run into the ground. Coventry are not safe. Wayne Rooney's Derby County are not safe. Um, but it does look like Wickham with their six wins are propping up the rear. I mean, this season you just haven't scored any goals. It's embarrassing. Yeah, it's been. Um, we've not been very good going forwards. We've not been particularly good at all, really. And we've we've lost Stephen Fletcher, who scored quite a few last season. So that's been a bit of a blow. No, that is it. Stephen Fletcher is a great Championship player. Would you say your squad is full of Championship type players? If you go down, if if if. Will you come straight back up because of the quality of the squad in comparison with the rest of the division? I'm not too sure about that. I think it's difficult. It's a difficult division to get out of League One if you do get relegated to it. And I think there's quite a few out-of-contract players as well. Mm. Uh, the likes of Barry Bannon have signed a new contract. So we will have some good players. I think it could be quite a change to the squad. Well, I'm looking at the back of uh, your first book, Owls, Sheffield Wednesday Through the Modern Era which came out in 2016 or 2017? 2016. The last time you were in third tier was 2012. You spent four seasons in the third tier in your lifetime, two of which ended in promotion. So it's a 50-50 record. It is quite a good record when you look at it. I've just seen more seasons than that. But we we did manage to get those couple of promotions by getting bringing in Paul Sturrock in the first one. And then bringing in Dave Jones for the second one, we managed to get out with it. So I guess you could be optimistic that that sort of thing could happen again. It just looks like a difficult division. Looking at people like teams like Sunderland and and whatnot, it's it's difficult to get out of. No, Sunderland have just been managed abysmally from the boardroom, as we've seen on Netflix. The last game of the season is one that I think a lot of car crash enthusiasts will watch. It's Derby against Sheffield Wednesday. Can you imagine Derby County in the third tier? Wayne Rooney going to Fleetwood. Yeah, that's the one pointed that fixture out to me, actually, the other day. You've got a busy Easter weekend, Watford away, and then Cardiff at home, Mick McCarthy's Cardiff City, who are going quite incredible guns. Are you optimistic for Monday? It is on television. It is, like, as as most people say, it is a chance that you can beat anybody. But Cardiff are doing really well with McCarthy, and it just shows what a good manager he still is. Well, the last time... Sheffield Wednesday won. Oh, it's hopeless. Before the big South Yorkshire derby, very helpful to beat Barnsley. It was um, Preston, Bournemouth and Wickham. So you had a very good early February. Uh, who's the player of the season? I don't know. I can't really answer that. I, can't, <laughs> I don't think anyone, anyone can warrant that at the moment, the way we've done, to be honest. I can't think of anyone who stands out for me, personally. I remember seeing Callum Patterson play left-back for Hearts when he was 17. I thought, this guy looks a player. And he's now been converted into a kind of Gareth Bale-type figure. Has he been playing mostly left-back, mostly 9 or 10 this season? 
he's sort of he's been playing in a few few various positions, but mainly further up the field. I know I think he might have played right back for Cardiff as well, but um, I don't think we've seen that at all. If if um, much or if at all, but yeah, he's been a bit further forward sometimes, just been up front. And, he's done okay, uh, but he's not a striker, I don't think. And is this right? Jack Marriott is on loan to you. Yeah, he's on loan from Derby, and he's. I think he had, he had quite a big injury, uh, and then he went back to Derby. I think to sort of um, whilst he was injured, but I think he's come back now. You know, he might be available for for some of these games. But not, of course, the game against Derby. That it looks like you'll either be down or you'll be surviving. Jordan Rhodes is scoring a few at the minute, so that's that's a bit more positive as well. Now, Jordan Rhodes in the third tier is going to destroy that league. You'll score 40 goals. You'll score more goals than the entire team has scored in the league this season. But we will... <laughs> I, I know we've got off on the wrong foot by talking about Wednesday, but we'll park that and we'll talk about Wednesday in the second half because you have a new book which must be called When the Seagulls Follow the Troller. Uh, football in the 90s. Who is your favourite? You've got uh, seven, eight, nine figures on the book's um, front and back cover. I, I said when Eden Hazard played, you'd pay just to go and watch him. Alexis Sanchez on his day, Meza Ozil on his day, Cantona on his day, was the Premier League's first box office star. After Bosman come in, and Bosman does appear in this book, when the Seagulls follow the troll of football in the 90s, 12.99 the ever-brilliant pitch publishing, and it's just come out. Do you remember, uh, as I did, the week when Cantona karate kicked the fan? And it was just on, like, turn to page 1, 3, 4, 5, 6, 9, 10, 11, 12. It was the, most of the Sun newspaper that day was Cantona. I think it was interesting how it was like a national news event from the footballing world, I guess, because it, it was such an extraordinary event. I guess it's like one of the... Certainly one of the defining moments of the 90s in terms of 90s football, I would say. It is certainly, and Cantona obviously gives the book the um, its its big figure, and he has got his collar right the way up. When you played football, who did you play like? I'm not sure if I managed to play like anyone, but I think because I'm Sheffield Wednesday fan, there was a lot of uh, you know Chris Waddle, David Hurst sort of era, so they were, the, I guess, the heroes at, at the time who you might want to uh, be like when you were playing footy. There is a book there, the bibliographies in your book as a football librarian interest me greatly. There is a book that I had not heard of and it's called Achieving the Goal. Did you read that when it came out? David Platt. The reason that is in there is basically just for the quote about when he was playing in Italy to see if he had anything interesting to say about Italy. So he put a, put a quote, I think it's in the prologue of the 90s book from that when he was maybe with Bari or someone like that. There's a host of footballers' memoirs. I do have quite a high bar for football memoirs to go into the football library, which is what we're here to induct your books into. Uh, Roy Keane is nowhere to be seen on the cover of the book. He is the security guard of the football library. Do you have happy memories of watching Roy Keane, even in the flesh? Would you have seen Roy Keane in the flesh? I think so. I think I'd have seen him at Hillsborough, sort of late 90s. Um, I presume he would have been playing... Um, and he was a great player, obviously, and just just sort of the complete midfield, complete central midfielder who could do everything. Yeah, what, what an extraordinary player, I think, and so important for United's 
um, successes, I think, particularly in the, in the mid to late 90s. Yeah, the players were one thing, but the gargantuan gap between them and the rest of the league. I mean, no wonder they won everything in at the start of the Premier League era, because until Jack Walker came along with his money, it was a complete monopoly. Uh, were, were there people in Sheffield who would be anyone but United fans? I'm not sure. I guess that... I guess from the outside, it, it did get a little bit repetitive when they were winning the league every year, when it was mixed up a bit with Blackburn and then later Arsenal and even the challenges from, from Newcastle. I think that made it a bit more interesting. But, but as you say, they were so dominant and they just seemed to get better as well through as Ferguson sort of evolved those teams. Yeah, much like, as we'll discover, Sheffield Wednesday did. It was revolution and evolution in equal measure. Uh, the book on the back has Dennis Burkamp, Sir Les Ferdinand, Rude Hullet, uh, the guy who invented sexy football, and Big Al, Alan Shearer. And he is wearing the Euro 96 England shirt with the crest in the middle. Tell me about your experience of Euro 96. I think it was a great tournament. It, it seemed like sort of the sun was shining every day that summer uh, in England. And just the fact that there was a there was these football matches on every day, several matches every day that you could watch. And then living in Sheffield, we had a few games at Hillsborough, so there was it was a bit vibrant. And as I write about in the book, we went to the game, me and my dad, see Croatia beat Denmark. So that that was brilliant. And and also all the England games were were good fun to watch as well. I remember the, I quite enjoyed, even though the Spain game wasn't like the best, but I seemed to remembers some of them were quite quite good moments apart from the semi-final of course but mm-hmm. it was uh, it was a great tournament I didn't remember my brain has blocked out that Spain had two penalties denied and a goal ruled out so we'll have to watch the highlights again did you go back and watch the games on YouTube I watched quite a lot of the games but that was probably from Jonathan Wilson's book I think something like that yes that's right uh, this is England in 10 matches uh, one of yeah. Wilson's many books, and if you tune in, if you tuned in over Christmas, you will have heard the Twelve Days of Wilson. Uh, I encourage people over Easter weekend uh, to revisit those. Um, four hours I spoke to Wilson in total. Wow! Which is yeah, he was very very generous with his time. He said, "Bake Off's at eight. Go on, start." But for you, I, I, obviously, I don't want to keep you. Too long. Have you got a third book in the works, or are you just promoting book number two when the seagulls follow the trawler? Yeah, just just trying to promote it at the minute now, and just having a having a bit of a break. It, it's quite a big undertaking uh, writing it, and so having a break is is pretty good. And and you know, I might get another idea while I'm while I'm sort of um, relaxing yeah. a bit more, but nothing at the moment. You and you you have travelled the country and you met the likes of the great David Conn, the great David Dean, Roy Evans, Les Ferdinand, um, Simon Inglis, Andy Walsh, whom we'll get to. Actually, we're talking about Man U, aren't we? Andy Walsh is one of the great figures of modern football. I hope he gets his documentary from the Full World people, Full World 73. He said he ran on adrenaline. What was Andy doing? And do you approve of him and his efforts? Sky B bid for Man United that they that their group of United fans sort of opposed and built a campaign to, to oppose late 90s, 99 I think 98, 99 Yeah this is Imusa, the independent United Supporters Association Yeah 
So that was going on during the treble season when obviously on the pitch a lot of great things were happening for United or build, building up. Sort of the project that a lot of United fans were in that Andy was, was involved in as well. And as you said, running on adrenaline, I think a project like that involving the uh, monopolies and mergers decision as well and, and making you know making an appeal to them it's it seemed like a massive project just just for just sort of done by a group of fans and then when the glazers came in and bought the club all his worst fears were realized because united are a debt actor talk about sheffield wednesday's debts which we will at length i mean united's debts are in just kind of tyrannosaurus rex of debt they're not a football club anymore they're a business who, it's, they're like kind of pop stars nowadays. What is Rita Ora? She's not a singer. What is Man United? They're not a football club. FC United are a football club. Uh, have, you, have you been to CFC United of Manchester? I did. I've been, I've been to their new ground uh, in Manchester and that was part of the research for the book. I don't really write about it, but I sort of felt like I had to go and I was quite interested to see what it was like. And that, that's good. You know, there's a lot of, um, lot of their fans there enjoying that from what I can tell and uh, what they've built fan owned club so it's quite yeah it's quite an interesting project do they bar people who are wearing Manchester United colours um, I don't know actually I think I seem to remember seeing a few Man U tops maybe maybe mm. for some older ones but um, I'm not sure kind of what their the approach is on that I think it's I guess because it's a if I'm right in saying a community of, of Manchester United fans who supported United but they've just sort of found another club to to follow as well or maybe instead of I think it varies actually yeah I mean from what I can tell as someone who watched Manchester United play in the Champions League on ITV back in the day um, I now reckon and, and I was a huge admirer of Cantona and Beckham and Sheringham and Solskjaer and it's great to see Solskjaer as manager and doing quite well but given the funds he's got he should be doing well uh, you lived in Manchester for five years. Whereabouts? The blue bit or the red bit? I lived in town, actually, so I wasn't too far from city's ground. That was certainly the nearest to me, but I'm not, I don't know whether I was particularly in, in one one side or the other, just sort of in, in, in town. So in, on, a, on a match day, for instance, at the weekend, town just got full up of either Man United fans or Man City fans before that game. So it was quite... Um, vibrant place to be I, I found when I lived there oh absolutely especially because when you said to people oh, I'm from Sheffield I'm a Wednesday fan they'd kind of just go "Ah." yeah you found it like particularly at work and that as well just no no one cared really it was which is understandable and it was quite nice at times really when we were you know what division are you in now kind of thing yeah that was quite common any anyone coming up that will journey onto Man United um, again uh, Sheffield Wednesday fans will have to wait until the second half because we're discussing this book which is I think sui generis I don't think there will be a book that has on its cover Alan Shearer Arsene Wenger Steve McManaman but the two characters that come out really well aside from Andy Walsh actually there are three Nicky Weaver I would love to spend time with Nicky Weaver he seems like a very very good egg uh, he talked you through the Man City story. Yeah, that was really good to meet him. So he's a he's a goalkeeper coach at Wednesday. So I think he's probably been interviewed about that '99 season for City many times before. But he was really good talking to me and talking about his career as well at City. Um, quite a down to earth, 
career, you would uh, you would say, and obviously he um, he made made a lot of appearances for him as he rose up through the divisions. But that was really good. He's a good laugh. Yeah, again, I'd love to have him on here. I'd love I'd love for one of his books, his memoir, to be in the football library. Has he written it down? Is there a Nicky Weaver story? It's not in the. Uh... Uh, I don't think there is. I think there should be though, because I think he's got a lot. He's got a lot of uh, of stories. So, but no, not to my knowledge. Of the football memoirs, which are the essential ones to go in the football library? And you can mention Philippe Auclair's book on Cantona, if you so wish. That's probably one of the best I've ever read that because of the subject, because of because uh, it's about Cantona. But it's just an excellent book. Um, quite like I don't know if this is not an autobiography either, but the Brian Clough one by Duncan Hamilton yeah, is brilliant yeah, yeah. as well. You know, Duncan Hamilton's got a novel coming out in July. Right, okay. It's a football novel. I'm going to try and get him in here because Hamilton is, as you know, not just on cricket, but he's one of the best football writers. And that book, Provided You Don't Kiss Me, is is in the bibliography, I think, because you did have to talk about the decline of uh, Nottingham Forest. Yeah, I use that to sort of start, end the prologue, start the Premier League era, as it were, where obviously Forest got relegated that season. And that was Clough's, Brian Clough's last season as well. So it was sort of like the end of the eighties, the end of a bit of an era. I felt at that moment. So yeah, that was a that was a good book for that one. Yeah, I mean the the end of the a lot of people say the twentieth century ended with the fall of the Berlin Wall. I think that's Eric Hobsbawm, but I think foot, the Premier League era really began uh, when Eric Cantona kicked Matthew Simmons, which was around the time that the Bosman case had gone through, which allowed free movement of footballers and the abolition of the very illegal three-foreigner rule. Who do you remember from your childhood? Were you more attracted to the foreign players, not necessarily Wednesday players, uh, but the foreign players or the English players? Clubs like Middlesbrough started buying people like Janino and then Ravinelli as well. Particularly Ravinelli was someone you'd seen playing for Juventus on the Champions League coverage and the, um, the Channel 4 Italian League coverage as well. And some of them, it just felt like um, you couldn't believe that they were playing in the Premier League, that they they would ever be signing here. Obviously, now the top players do do sign, they do play for the clubs, but it was it was quite eventful, I thought, when when transfers like that happened. I loved uh, the idea of Backpage, the bookshop in Newcastle. I must go there at some point because that is one of the models for the football library. And you spoke to Mick Edmondson, who is a fanzine writer at Newcastle and edited back page uh, and yeah he talks with real warmth about the Keegan era which we all remember but you do- it's 25 years now since Love It Love It more or less to the month uh, and Newcastle are one of the great stories they were the entertainers did they come to um, I've forgotten the name of the state Hillsborough I've almost called it Allison uh, did they come to Hillsborough and entertain I think it was quite early on in that 95-96 season where journalists scored that really good goal uh, from outside of the box, top corner, I think, and and they won at Hillsborough. So that was that was kind of the early stages of that uh, ninety five ninety six team really getting going. Ferdinand probably scored as well that day. I mean, the Newcastle one I quite enjoyed writing about, and certainly enjoyed meeting Mick. His shop's brilliant. If you go in there, it's it's just all football books and then like football memorabilia and such like. Just looking around there is really 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 nice and you just you, there's lots of programs and whatnot and it's really near to St James's as well so it's kind of feels like it's almost a part of it that area obviously St James's is part of 
Newcastle, this, the um, city centre as well. So just a great place to be and talking to Mick about following that team and just the love they had, uh, he had for that for that team. And even though they didn't quite win the title, they just had a brilliant time and it was uh, a great time to be following football. And, and hopefully that would relate to a lot of football fans that obviously you want to win trophies, but if you had a team that exciting, then it just must be brilliant. And it is no surprise that you have included in your bibliography uh, Martin Hardy's trilogy. Uh, oh, it's a, it's a duology. It's two books, Touching Distance and Tunnel of Love. Where do you keep all the books? That's where I meant to ask. How is your football library? All right, yeah, I just, I just keep them at home. I've got quite a lot, probably got too many, sort of in a spare room, so they're not taking up too much space. Very good. If you do get bored of some of them, you know where to send them care of. The football library. Uh, is there, apart from the Duncan Hamilton book, are there any books that you would take with you on a long flight somewhere? Come back to Jonathan Wilson. Quite enjoy, you know, some of his his older ones. The um, the tactics one and the um, the Argentinian ones, pretty good as well. That would probably last a long flight as you well. You know so. how Zack Snyder's just brought out this four-hour Justice League film. If Jonathan Wilson brought out the unexpurgated draft of the Argentina book Angels with Dirty Faces, because that was what I wanted to, wanted to know. How did you know when to stop? And he said, yeah, and exactly right, because it's a big book as it is. But it could have gone on and on and on. With this book, it's about 80,000 words. Your yeah, book. something like that. I think more like 70, actually. Bit, bit less than that, bit less than the Wednesday one. Yeah. But yeah, about 70. I should say it ends... With a meeting with the king, Eric Leroy. Uh, hello, hello, he says. He holds out his big Cantonar hand and we shake. Hi, I say. Nice to meet you. You too. He signs the page of his sketchbook. I almost bought it because it was on sale. And I thought, do I, do I really want Eric Cantonar's doodlings? At least you've got it signed. Have you still got, where is, is that uh, pride and place in your library in the spare room? Yeah, I've still got that. Yeah, that's uh, that's a good one because he signed it as well. Is it legible? Can you make out the Eric and the C? I can't remember. So I think I think it fairly fairly so. Yeah, yeah. Good. I think it's a I think it's a decent one. Have you forgiven Howard Wilkinson yet? Do you mean for not signing? Cantonal? Yes. Is that what? Yeah. Yeah. Was it Wilkinson? So, that would be Trevor Francis actually. Uh, bit, bit bit after, but. Um, I think it's an interesting... There's, there's probably about five different versions of that story of Cantona nearly but not signing for Wednesday before he signed for Leeds. Um, and there is a there was a photo of him in a Wednesday shirt and he, and he played in a, like a friendly game at the Sheffield Arena as well uh, before he signed for anyone. So it's a bit... It's a bit kind of what if he'd signed, but I'm not, I'm not sure whether it would have changed the course of history that much, actually. Maybe Wednesday would have been a bit more successful and it would have been great if he'd signed. But who knows? Uh, maybe you wouldn't have signed Waddle because you wouldn't have been able to have Cantona and Waddle. Could you? Yeah, I guess you would have, it would have been... Well, I mean, Waddle would have come after that. But um, yeah. I don't know, maybe they would have signed him as well and that would have been a particularly exciting uh, attacking thing from Wednesday. One thing I like about your work, uh, having read Owls and having read the, When the Seagulls Follow the Trawler, is that you are interested in finances as well. And so here's a, a two-part quiz. If the average Premier League player's salary per week was £1,500 in 1992, 
How much was it in the year 2000? Um, was it some, something like 7,000? Yeah, 7,000, absolutely right, which is still a hilarious amount of money. What did you do? What do you do with £7,000 a week? That is da, 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 da. 350 grand a year minus tax, £200,000. What do you do? Yeah, it's still, uh, still a decent, yeah. decent pay for, them, for the players. Uh, and don't forget, Vim Yonk got a five grand pay if you don't play con- clause. That was apparently what, what the case was, yeah, for that one, which is still I can't get my head round. Well, don't worry, the bank was paying for it more later. And then the second part of that question, and this does come from Owls, your book, Sheffield Wednesday Through the Modern Era. The first Premier League TV deal was £300 million. In the 1997-8 TV deal, for the next few years, how much was it? I think, was it about double, about 600 and something? Yeah, 670. And that was to fewer clubs, of course. It was to 20 clubs, not 22. Yeah. Yeah. Again, ludicrous. But then when you've got like Robbie Fowler playing, and uh, history will recall that Robbie Fowler's very good at owning houses in Liverpool, but he's very good at scoring goals. And there's one that you describe. Uh, in the football library, there'll be digital versions of every book, so you can just click a hyperlink and it will come up in like a hologram or something. But this goal, you, you're, you're a very good football journalist as well, because you described this goal with the bending away strike of Robbie Fowler. This was against Man U. Goals that I talk about because I, I think he did score some quite memorable and excellent goals. So in the Cantona game, he scored twice. One of them was when he sort of knocked Gary Neville out of the way and then lifted it over Schmeichel, I think it was. And then another was kind of, I think it was like a near post, a very, uh, I don't know what you call it, sort of rocket shot um, that he scored to put Liverpool 2 1 up, I think it was. But the one I was the other, the one you mentioned then was against Aston Villa, Villa, where we sort of turned past Steve Staunton and then just sort of hit it quite. It just hit it so well, and it just sort of glided into the into the net, and that's a brilliant goal, I think. And also, Robbie Fowler, the original Marcus Rashford, because nowadays, if you don't support the cause then you're no one. It's, it's the complete inverse of what happened with Fowler and Liverpool and the support of the Dockers, which is probably, I like to call, anthology-worthy. If it's a particularly good chapter, it's anthology-worthy. And really, this chapter on Tony Nelson, who was a Docker who, like Andy Walsh, just ran on adrenaline. But this was like two years of campaigning. Yeah, so that was the, um, the uh, Dockers dispute in Liverpool where... It went on for a long time, and talking to Tony, who was who was one of the uh, gentlemen involved in that, he, he just spoke about how how um, why they needed to do it, why they were doing it, and how difficult it was going through through all that time. You know, just um, not working basically, and being on the picket line every day and through through the seasons, it, it sound you know it was quite a, it was quite a big uh, moment for for those guys. Yeah, this chapter, uh, the chapter's called The Flickering Flame. It was physically exhausting, but it kept the men together rather than them sitting at home and festering. Uh, And then at the bottom of the para, I watched Liverpool on TV when I could. There was too much going on at the time. I just hated all that Spice Boys shite and everything. Did you also hate that Spice Boys shite and everything? Um, Well, I suppose I didn't really mind it because I guess that's for Liverpool fans um, and their interpretation of that. I think that 
you can you can understand Tony's um, view on that, particularly how successful Liverpool have been in the eighties, and perhaps the, you know that that kind of thing wasn't happening. Um, so I think there was fr- frustrations because of how maybe that Liverpool team could have been a bit more successful and won some trophies during that that time. Had a few things been different, you, you could say. I think uh, Fowler talks about that. So there's a quote from Fowler about that. I think as well. Mm-hmm. And there was one player who supported the Dockers who actually turned up and struck, striked with them, Bjernabe. Yeah, yeah. So Tony mentioned that and he, I think he just used to turn up in his car and just, just sort of stand with them. I thought that was a really nice story. You know, it wasn't like for publicity or anything like that. It was just to, just to be, uh, be with them in solidarity and support them. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I'll, I'll raise the tone. Do you still drink from your David Wagner mug and wear your Huddersfield Town flat cap? No, I don't think I've got those anymore. I bought <laughs> those out of uh, on the research trip. I always used to go in like the, the shops and and just have a look around, and I just used to buy anything if I thought it was a bit, uh, you know, a bit different. Like the flat cap was quite quite good. I thought from Huddersfield, but one of my best moments of football was when I started really following Watford away, going to places like Bolton and Blackburn and Wigan. I went to the McAlpine Stadium, now the John Smith Stadium, as you did. Um, and one of the Watford fans was going, does your whippet know you're here? Which was amusing because it's terrace humour. Uh, I mean, it's horribly uh, condescending. But I did acknowledge the marvellous, because Watford won that day, but just the marvellous stadium very near the station. And it was built by... One of the unsung heroes of modern football, do you reckon? The architect? I think it's a really good stadium. I still think it looks great now. Uh, the, the design and whatnot a bit different to some of the other stadiums that were built then. But yeah, I think that if you sort of look at the the grounds that practice built in the years after and have done recently, I think you can see that journey of, of where, where we are now with these super stadiums. I think it's, I think it's great. Dale Jennings is the chap's name. Dale's a really nice guy. I have a chat with him and he was he was involved in the Huddersfield project as guest as guest kind of um, when he was starting his career and then more recently and, and through all the years working on other stadium projects but more recently been been involved in the Tottenham one which I think is quite a good link I write about that in, in the book as well just how I kind of what happened in the 90s and how it's kind of developed into the present day. This is an amazing question. What links the John Smith Stadium, the Aviva Stadium Dublin, uh, the London Stadium and Sochi's Winter Olympic Stadium. And it's all uh, populous. They've done a lot of, uh, yeah, they've worked on, on lots and I guess you can see similarities between some of those those grounds as well. The London Stadium is not a football stadium for a start. Have you, have you been to the London Stadium? No, I haven't actually. Oh, not yet. I mean, you can play football there. Uh, it is ironic to note that no one is booing Sullivan and Gold and Brady now that West Ham are actually doing as well as they should do uh, when they don't have players in the stadium. Uh, would that it was the case for Sheffield Wednesday as well. Did you win the Champions League with Sheffield Wednesday or the European Champions Cup as they're forced to call it? I always read the acknowledgements to any book and uh says here, thank you to the Collier brothers for creating Championship Manager all those years ago. I don't know if I was that good at it, actually. Oh, I'm uh, hopeless. To, to win that, but yeah. What formation did you tend to play? Well, that's a good question. I can't quite remember. 
think there was a the variety of ones, ones that, ones that he kind of found out were more successful than others, and then I guess he just went with them, even if in in real life they might not have uh, been that successful. Oh, please tell me, because I always play either four two and then an advanced two and four and two, or um, three five two. So I'd love to know which formation does work if there is a cheat code. <laughs> I don't, I don't know nowadays, but I, I seem to remember. Having a back four was always a good idea as mm-hmm. a starting point. I did really, really well with Arsenal. Who knew that um, promoting from within, developing youth, uh, keeping your eye on the finances... Basically, if you're Arsene Wenger, you do really well. Um, Wenger, who famously invented pasta, um, did you enjoy watching Arsenal? Yeah, I think I'd, I'd have seen him live a few times around that time. Um, but yeah, I certainly enjoyed watching him. I think when they got Vieira and Petit in the midfield, that was and Elvamars as well was really what a great player I thought to have in the Premier League. It was so fast. But yeah, I thought I thought he built a really good team pretty quickly as well. And obviously the base of, a, of the older Arsenal team, and then he kind of added to it and changed it. And I thought obviously when they won the double in '98, that was great. And then '99, they might have won the league as well, competing against Man United. So they're a really good team. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll move to Sheffield Wednesday shortly, but the epilogue is particularly good. Um, I'm 33 years old, so it leapt out at me when you said that you lost your friend Matt, uh, who unfortunately a Sheffield United fan and was one of the chaps uh, whom you would watch in the pub uh, on Super Sundays in the Broomhill Tavern, you and Jimmy and Matt. Now, Matt was a Sheffield United fan and... Their caretaker manager currently is Paul Heckingbottom. Well, wouldn't Heckingbottom be a good second-tier manager? He did okay at Barnsley. I think he did okay at Leeds, although I'm not entirely sure exactly how he did at Leeds. I know he was one of the managers like Gary Monk. Yeah, he um, was Salinoed. Yeah, I think, he'd, I think he'd be all right for them, but I'm not sure whether he's, he's in the running for that particular, as you said, with Tyndall being brought in straight away. We'll wait for that. Sheffield United were more a team of the 2000s than the 90s. The book, When the Seagulls Follow the Trawler, Football in the 90s. And there's the Twin Towers of Wembley Stadium as well, I should have mentioned. Uh, Which footballer would you like to talk to for a future project, do you think? Probably Burkamp still, Dennis Burkamp, I think. I would have liked to talk to him for the 90s book, but... Uh, that never never managed that, so I think he's, he's quite interesting. I think like to know what he was thinking. Maybe mm. Edwin Van der Sar as well mm. seems quite uh, interesting. What he's up to now with Ajax. Yeah. Very is the CEO of Ajax. And did you know Dennis Burkamp's son plays for Watford? Okay, right. Well, so that's uh, I could Adam Leventhal uh, for the Athletic spoke to Dennis Senior about. Um, his son joining Watford in the pathway uh, and there is a future in a kind of weird regen manner where Burkamp and Pochettino because Mauricio Jr. is also at Watford they could play for Watford someday um, although it'd probably be more likely that we'll just loan them out to Wednesday well we won't mind that'd be alright having Burkamp at Wednesday 